0: I want to welcome you this morning to Redemption Hill Church. Send greetings to those who are not only uh, in here in the sanctuary, but I know we have a few who are downstairs uh, worshiping with us today. We're glad you're here and hope that you will enjoy uh, not just listening to a sermon, but also some fellowship with other people in the body. Um, it's good to be together today on the Lord's Day. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be in the 20th chapter of Exodus today. If you're visiting with us, uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus verse by verse each week, and we've come to the point in the narrative where God gives his law to his people at Mount Sinai. And we've been sort of looking at the law as a whole, looking at sort of the big picture, what the law is, how the law fits. We're going to take the next several weeks to look at each of the Ten Commandments um, on their own. So today we will be looking at the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20 will begin in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's bow and pray as we get into God's word. Father, we come to you acknowledging um, what we've already even discussed this morning earlier that your word is true, that it is your revelation of yourself, that it is without error, it is without comparison in its authority and its power. Lord, this text is familiar to many of us, but I pray that as we come underneath it today that you would speak to us, that you would expose our sin, that you would point us to Christ, and that you would shape us to be the people that you desire. So Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Use your word to illuminate, to encourage, to instruct, to convict. We pray that your power would be evident today in and among your people. Amen. So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a familiar one. I I hope it is. Um, We won't poll the audience today and say how many of you could list the ten commandments in order. I'm sure a few of you could, some of us might stumble a bit, but you probably know this one. You probably know that the first commandment is that God told Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a familiar commandment, but it's one to go back and understand what was going on that day. These people desperately needed this commandment. You see, these people had pagan roots. This is where they had come from. It was a culture, a world that was steeped in, in the worship of many gods. God had called Abraham out of Ur. God had later called the nation Israel out of Egypt. Both places were rife with the worship of many gods. That was just the culture they lived in. That's the air that they breathed. And Israel not only needed this commandment because of where they came from, but they also needed this commandment of, because of where they were going. They would have pagan neighbors as they entered into the land of Canaan. And the temptation to worship those local gods, the temptations to assimilate, temptations to buy into the promises of prosperity for their flocks and their crops, the draw of their sensual worship rituals, that was going to be a major challenge for these people. They needed this commandment, and we need it too. You and I today live in a pluralistic society where people believe in many gods. Or if they believe in one God, they believe there are many ways to that God, both equally wrong. But more often than not, the gods of our age are not made out of silver or gold or stone like Baal or Ashtaroth or Dagon or some of the other gods of that day. We, today, we worship money, we worship pleasure. We worship power and success and the approval of man. But really underneath all of those gods, there's probably one ultimate God today in our culture. It's the God of self, which means that the United States has approximately 328 million gods because we have over 328 million people living here. 328 million gods whose pleasure must not be opposed God's whose health must be preserved at all costs. God's whose identities and preferences must be affirmed. God's whose pursuit of happiness must not be interfered with. That's really the dominant religion of our day. It's the worship of self. That's the world we live in. And we too are tempted to assimilate, to buy into the empty promises. We too are tempted and pulled to be drawn into their sensuality. But the danger for us is not just out there. The danger is also in here. Our own hearts are prone to wander. As the human condition is that we are made to worship. And Romans 1 reminds us that we often tend to exchange the glory of the Creator for the glory of created things. As John Calvin famously put it in his Institutes, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We crank them out all the time. Our hearts are drawn to whatever promises protection or whatever promises us peace or whatever promises us prosperity or pleasure. And into the chaos and the confusion of human history and human hearts, God speaks this word. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of the 10 words uttered from Mount Sinai to his redeemed people, Israel. And it's the one upon which all the others hang. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, I want to make, make clear what it means before him, before him. That doesn't mean that God just needs to be first in priority among all of our other gods. You know, I put God first as I also worship myself and my career and my ambitions, I put God first as I also trust in these earthly, worldly authorities and values. No. To have no other gods before me means that there are to be no other gods tolerated at all. God is saying there are to be no other gods before my face. No other gods in my presence. God doesn't want to just be the first among many. His people are to worship him alone. As God says in Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will give to no other. God doesn't share his glory. He's not okay with, with divided worship. The central idea of this commandment is that the Lord deserves and demands exclusive worship. God in heaven, Yahweh, the Lord, deserves and demands exclusive worship. I want to look at three aspects of this commandment today and give us really three insights into what it means to worship God exclusively. What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, number one, let's look at the basis for the commandment. The basis for this commandment is found in the preamble in verses one through two. And and the basis of the commandment, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery This preamble shows us that exclusive worship is a response It's a response to who God is and a response to what God has done I am the Lord your God that's who he is who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery that is what he has done. Walter Kaiser comments, all that Yahweh is, says, and does is embodied in this one affirmation. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When you see that all capital letters, you know, Lord, that's the Hebrew name for God. Yahweh, his personal name, not just a title, not just a description. That's who he is. The I am, Yahweh, This name is repeated seven times following this preamble. It peppers the Ten Commandments. Throughout this Ten Commandments, seven times, completion, perfection of God saying, this is who I am, this is my name. And our worship is a response. God's name is a perpetual reminder of who he is. Consider who God is. As we respond to God, we are responding to who God is. And he is the God of glory. We worship him because he's glorious. We worship him because there's no one like him. When God says, I am the Lord, he's reminding us of his glorious nature. He is glorious in his essence. Only Yahweh is eternal and self-sustaining. We talked about this weeks ago when Moses encountered God at the burning bush and he said, I am who I am. Only God can say that. The other supposed gods that were worshipped by the pagans, they all had origin stories. They all had birth narratives. They, they had all been either born or produced. They had maybe emerged somehow from the primordial chaos so, but they had a beginning, and they were all dependent upon things in creation. They had needs that their pagan worshipers met by sacrificing to them or engaging in immorality. But God is the one who was in the beginning. He did not emerge from the chaos. He created the chaos and then formed and filled it over six days into a very good creation. This God needs nothing. He is completely self-sustaining. Only God can say, I am. Only the Lord is God. He's glorious in his nature, but he's also glorious in his power. When God rehearses to them his name, he's reminding them of who he is and that he has triumphed over the supposed gods of Egypt. He'd put them to shame. Remember, every one of those plagues was a public humiliation of one of the deities worshipped in Egypt. Oh, you guys worship the sun? I'm going to make it dark. You guys worship the Nile? I'm going to turn it to blood. You guys worship the Pharaoh? I'm going to kill his firstborn son. Every one of the plagues putting to shame the supposed gods of Egypt. And remember why God did that. He said, so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. God is to be known as glorious in his power, supreme over all. He's glorious in his nature, glorious in his power, and he's also glorious in his presence. Don't forget where we are at this moment as God speaks this first of the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel have gathered at Mount Sinai and God had descended there and manifested his glory. The people had seen it. They saw the the mountain wrapped in smoke. They saw the flashes of light. They had heard it. The sound of the trumpet and the the pounding of the thunder. And they'd even felt the nearness of his glory as, as the ground beneath their feet trembled. And this was a new experience for them. I mean, these people, they had seen plenty of temples in Egypt, probably even helped build some, but they had never experienced anything like this. God is glorious in his presence, and he stands before them and says, I am the Lord. Exclusive worship of Yahweh is the right response to who he is. He is the God of glory. But we not only consider who God is, we also need to consider what God has done. He's not just the God of glory. He's also a God of grace. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Think about it. What other God had ever rescued a people out of slavery like this? No one. What other God would make and keep such great promises of salvation? It's never been done before or since. What kind of God would hear his people's cries and provide such a marvelous rescue through signs and wonders leading them to freedom through the parting of the Red Sea? There's no one like this God. There's no one gracious like him. And why did God redeem them? God brought them out so that they would worship and serve him. Exclusive worship is a response to not only who God is, but what he has done for us. If Israel was to worship other gods, that would be the ultimate insult to the God who saved them. It'd be the ultimate act of ingratitude, completely taking for granted what it was that God had poured out upon them and showing them so much grace. Really, these people needed to say, like the Apostle John would centuries later, we love him because he first loved us. Our worship is a response to his grace. And this is the basis for the first commandment. It's who God is and what God has done. Have you experienced his grace? Do you know this God? Then you must respond by worshiping him alone. Exclusive worship is a response to who God is and what God has done. That's the basis for this commandment and the rest. But there's a second aspect of this first commandment, and that's the meaning of this commandment. The meaning of this commandment is this. Exclusive worship is a relationship with the one true God. It's a relationship with the one true God. You might be saying, okay, JD, I read this text just like you. I'm not seeing the word relationship here. No, the word relationship isn't found, but I want you to see some of the other things that are being said. He says that he is the Lord, Yahweh. Who is the Lord? The Lord is the one who called Abraham, who initiated an unconditional covenant with him and his descendants, who started a relationship with Abraham and his children and his children's children. That's part of the meaning of what's wrapped up when you see this name, Yahweh. This is his covenant name. A name that reflects his commitment to his people, his love for them, his loyalty to them. It is relational. And he says, he is the Lord, in verse 2, your God. There is personal involvement here. God has drawn near to them and brought them out out of Egypt and brought them near to himself. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is personal. And then he says, even in the commandment itself, you shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have? What does it mean to have a God? I believe that this is a relational phrase. Kind of like in marriage. A man has a wife or a wife has a husband. And God desires that they would have him alone as their God. He is a jealous God. He desires exclusive relationship with his people and he will not tolerate any rivals. Think about it. No healthy, loving marriage will tolerate a third party in that relationship. No husband will feel honored by his wife if she says, you know what, honey, I love you and I I love being married to you. I want to be married to you. Um, But by the way, there's another guy or two that I plan to bring into our home once in a while. no. (laughs) No. And likewise, no wife would feel treasured and loved by her husband if he said, You know what, sweetie, I really love you, but sometimes I like to date other women too. Though some people may do that sort of thing today, that is not how a faithful, loving, holy marriage is supposed to work. And it's not how God's covenant with his people works either. This is exclusive. You shall have no other gods before me. The Old Testament actually picks up this imagery of marriage to describe God's relationship with Israel. And we see this especially in the prophets, in Ezekiel and Hosea. And the New Testament does the same thing with Christ and the church. We are collectively called his bride. And we are to have no other husband. We are to have no other Lord. We are to have no other God. There's to be a relational faithfulness. Exclusive worship is a relationship with the one true God. God is a jealous God. And we think of that word jealousy as being negative um, because sometimes our jealousy can be sinful. But there is a right kind of jealousy God is jealous for the love and the affection and the worship of his people, not because he's selfish, not because he's egotistical, but because his love for his own means that he desires that we would love him as well. And he desires that we would love him with a love that is faithful and exclusive and loyal. Exodus 20 verse 5, just a few verses later, as God talks about how they are to worship, he says, you shall not bow down to them. To any graven images, images, or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And he says, You shall have no other gods before me, not tolerating any other side relationships with other gods. Love me alone. This is the meaning of the commandment that God desires exclusive worship. And this is why as the law goes on to be further developed, this negative command of not having any gods before him is going to be matched up perfectly with positive commands that show the flip side of the coin. This is captured probably most famously in the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this statement that the Hebrew people rehearsed and memorized and taught their children and literally wrote on little scrolls and mounted it inside their doorway. And the Shema says this, hear, O Israel. That's what Shema means. Listen, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. This is the positive side of the negative prohibition in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's no to everyone else. And you shall love the Lord your God with everything you have. That's yes, a yes to the one true God. This raises a key question though. If we're supposed to say no to every other God and yes to the true God, does that mean that there are other gods? When God gives this commandment, you shall have no other gods. Is he recognizing and acknowledging that there are um, competitors out there and that there are gods? Well, the prophets answer this for us. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse two. God says, learn not the way of the nation's nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. They were superstitious about weather and attaching it to all these various gods. It says, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. They're empty. They're worthless. They're meaningless. He continues, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of the craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Jeremiah concludes, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Listen, false gods are vanity. There are no real competitors to Yahweh. The supposed gods of the nations are empty. They are nothing. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and, from, or, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Paul agrees with Jeremiah, who agrees with the psalmist, who agrees with Isaiah. There is only one God. The Bible does speak of powerful beings who are often behind the scenes, though, when idolatry is involved. Satan is called the God of this world. He's a powerful being, he's a ruler who's influencing many things. Leviticus 17 forbids the sacrificing in the wilderness to the goat demons, showing that behind all of these false gods, there were spiritual powers involved. But while there may be powerful entities at work in the world, beings that are far more powerful than you and I, they're still in the same category as us. They're still created things. They are not in the category of God, who alone stands as the uncreated one, who is eternal. Psalm 83, 18 says, You alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. God stands alone as God So exclusive worship is relational, and it's a relationship with the one true God. It's a recognition that he alone is God, and it's a faithful response of love and loyalty to him. So that's the basis for the commandment. So it's a response to who he is and what he has done. The meaning of the commandment is this loyalty to him, exclusive relationship. What about the application of this first commandment? Well, here's a third insight I'd like to share. Number three, exclusive worship is a rejection of false gods. It's a rejection of false gods. So this exclusive worship, it's a response to who God is and what he's done. It's a relationship with him, the one true God, and it's a rejection of false gods. And you might think we've already covered this, but I want to press further into this because this is something that requires action. It's something that requires action. It requires a lot more than just thinking and understanding the truth. The application of this commandment for Old Testament Israel was spelled out for them in the case laws that followed the Ten Commandments. We mentioned this before, but the Ten Commandments are sort of like the Constitution for Israel. This is like the the foundational basic principles. There's a whole bunch of laws that come, come after. There's 613 total laws in the Mosaic Covenant. But all of those other laws, these statutes are really case-by-case applications of the principles we find laid out in the Ten Commandments. And we find some of these applications of the First Commandment that show us the law did not tolerate idolatry and prescribed action. In Exodus 22, verse 18, just a few pages over, it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. You might say, what does that have to do with anything? Where does that come from? This is an application of the First Commandment. Commandment. Sorcery is the pursuit of spiritual power and spiritual knowledge apart from God. It's pursuing those other beings and looking to them for something that we should only look to God for. It's disloyalty to God's covenant. And such false worship is so serious that it called for capital punishment in Old Testament Israel. Exodus 22, verse 20 says, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. It's a serious matter. And when this law was violated, it required the punishment of the law. Exodus 23, verse 13, another statute. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. This is fascinating to me. God says, don't even talk about these other gods. Don't take their names on your lips. Don't give honor to them. Don't acknowledge them. Don't recognize them as being legitimate in any way. They're to keep as far from idolatry as possible, not even to entertain entertain the idea of it. How much of a better place would the modern church be in today if we didn't give so much credence and credibility to the false ideas of the world? Exodus chapter 23, verse 23, says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, this is referring to the conquest in Canaan. And he says, and when I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them, and then notice this, and break their pillars in pieces. Again, this is an application of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And this means that these people must not become enamored with the art and the beauty and the wealth and the traditions that are associated with pagan worship. If they hang on to these things, it is going to cause them to stumble. It's going to corrupt their worship. It is going to be a snare to them. Rather than getting sucked into those things, they're supposed to destroy them. Tear those pillars down. Break them in pieces, Moses says. Exodus 23, verse 32 says, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. You see here that there's all these different applications of the first commandment. To have no other gods before me means when you show up in Canaan, when you live in a pagan land, when you're carrying out the conquest that I've given you, here's the kinds of things you need to be doing. And here's the law that I want you to follow. The first commandment requires not just a a passive avoidance of idolatry. It requires actively rejecting and even destroying false gods. To maintain exclusive worship may require work. It requires that we make decisions. It requires that we take action. Throughout scripture, this is a regular theme. We see it here in Moses' day at Sinai. We see it again in Joshua's day. Moses' successor, Joshua, towards the end of his life. And Joshua 24, verse 14 says this, as he speaks to Israel. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He called people to a decision, and he called them to take action. Put away the false gods. And actively serve the Lord. We see this in Elijah's day as well. The prophet Elijah called out the prophets of Baal and summoned them to a showdown at Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah comes near to all the people. He he had assembled the nation there to watch this showdown. And he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They were uncomfortable because Elijah put them on the spot and called them into a decision and says, make up your mind. Figure out who it is that's worth worshiping and then do it. Do it. We see this same emphasis in Jesus' day. In Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one, no one can serve two masters. Make up your mind. He says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We have to make a decision. We have to reject false gods. We cannot serve two masters, but it's our natural tendency to try, to try to hold on to both. The first commandment is clear. The laws and the statutes are clear. The words of the prophets and Jesus are clear. So it comes to us today, what are we going to do? How are you going to respond to this commandment? You know, we may not be participating in sort of the the gross idolatry of the world, You probably don't have any statues or pillars built in your backyard where you go and sacrifice chickens. If you do, please talk to me afterwards. We're going to schedule counseling next week, and we'll work through that together, okay? But I'm guessing most of you probably don't have that going on. But there is a subtle form of idolatry that is alive and well today in the church. This does apply to us. There's a real danger today, just like there was then, of syncretism. Syncretism means mixing two things together. Yeah, we're here and we're worshiping God and we're singing these truths about Jesus and we love this, but our hearts are also trusting in other things. And we've admitted other authorities outside of God into our lives. We're looking to other resources for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose, for identity. There's a real danger that false worship today infiltrates into the church. So what do we do when we realize that, you know what, maybe I'm guilty of not worshiping God exclusively, not looking to him alone for everything I need, not fearing him above everything else, not being submitted fully to his authority alone. What do I do when I realize I'm guilty? Because the law tends to do that to us. It makes us feel guilty because it shows us our sin. What do we do? Two ways to respond. First of all, we need to embrace the duty of holy action. Today, you need to embrace the duty of holy action. This commandment, when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not the collective you. It's not a plural pronoun. It's you individually. It's you personally. It's in the singular. You shall have no other gods before me. And that means that you need to act. And perhaps today, if God's word has convicted you of sin, then you need to repent and you need to eliminate such false worship from your life. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. Um, It's a longer text, so I I want you to read it with me and, and see what I'm seeing. Because really, we have an amazing example of what this looks like to repent. An amazing example of what it looks like to embrace the duty of holy action when sin is exposed by God's word. In 2 Kings chapter 23, this is much, much later in the history of Israel. They'd actually split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern two tribes that were known as Judah. Idolatry plagued both kingdoms, north and south. And in fact, in the southern kingdom of Judah, the law, the the book of Moses, these 10 commandments, it had actually been lost for about 50 years. Imagine the effect that would have on a society. But during a renovation of the temple, the law was found. And upon reading it, King Josiah realizes just how far they had fallen away from God's word. And he takes immediate action, responding in really radical obedience to the first commandment. We'll pick up reading in verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord All the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan-Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron." And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel. The high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. That's a long section but I want you to see what this man did. When God's word is recovered, as it was in Josiah's day, when God's truth is made known, as it was in Josiah's day, then the sin in our life is brought to light. Josiah realized that at every gate and on every mountain and even within the temple itself, there was evidence of idolatry everywhere. And he knew that the only right response to the first commandment, was to act, was to act. And he takes steps of radical obedience. Listen, obedience to the first commandment is not merely an intellectual process. Listen, sometimes you have to burn some things down. Sometimes you have to tear it down and eliminate things from your life that are evidence of idolatry and false worship. Now listen, we don't have the ability or the jurisdiction like a king does to go out and eradicate all the idolatry in our culture as much as we would love to. But we are called to eradicate it in our own lives. We're not called to go slaughter the pagan priests with the sword and defile their their altars with their bones. But we are called to kill the sinful impulses that remain in our own lives. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. You and I have to take accountability for what's going on in our hearts and in our homes and in our church. Just as in Josiah's day, God's law has been read this morning in our hearing. We've been made aware of what is true and right and good. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? Perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning. Perhaps he's pointing out something in your life that has been tolerated. Something in your heart that competes with God. Competes for your trust. Competes with God for your fear. Competes with God for your loyalty and your devotion. Listen, if God is speaking to you today, then you need to embrace the duty to take holy action to turn from your idolatry, to confess it as sin and to forsake it utterly. This is what repentance is. We use that word repentance all the time, so much so that sometimes I think we forget what it means. This is what it looks like. This is the fruit of repentance, a holy action to eradicate idolatry from your life. And with this repentance also comes a second response, and it's the flip side of the coin. With repentance also comes the necessity of faith. I'm very simply calling you today to faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. And our faith looks like this it is to worship Christ, the one who is God and the one who is our Redeemer. As we turn from our sin, as we reject false gods, we must then turn to the true God, to the one who is alone worthy of worship. And to know God, to know Yahweh, to know the Lord to see him, to be in relationship with him. We must come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus continues to say this. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How can Jesus say that you know him and have seen him? Because they know Jesus and they see Jesus. This is nothing short of Christ's claim to the full divinity of God. Jesus is not only our way to God. Jesus is the very revelation of God's glory He is the image of the unseen God. He is the word made flesh who dwelt among us, who was in the beginning with God and who was God, as John says in his gospel. Upon Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, is bestowed the name that is above every name. And I love going to this text with Jehovah's witnesses, those who love the high name of God. Jehovah is another pronunciation of Yahweh. What is the name above every name? It's Yahweh. Paul says, upon Jesus is bestowed the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow bow in worship at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess that he is lord not only that he is master but that he is god 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. So John concludes, Little children, keep yourself from idols. The rejection of idolatry and the worship of Christ go hand in hand. There is no true worship of God that forgets or minimizes or rejects Christ. Listen, we obey the first commandment by worshiping Jesus. We do. Israel's worship was rooted in who God was and what God has done. And so is ours. Our worship is rooted in who Christ is. God in the flesh. And our worship is a response to what Christ has done a response to his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus is leading a new and greater exodus, leading us out of slavery to sin, out of our bondage to death. Jesus went to the cross to cleanse us from our idolatry, to make atonement for our unfaithfulness, and to make us worshipers. He told the woman at the well in Samaria that the Father is seeking those who will worship him those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So as we turn from our sin, as we seek to take holy action to cut out false worship out of our life, we must then turn to Jesus Christ and look to him exclusively as our Lord. We bow the knee to him as master and we trust in his gospel because none of our repenting can really merit forgiveness. No matter how good we are at cutting out false worship, we can never atone for our sin. Only Jesus can do that. So yes, we turn away from our sin, but we're not the ones who are able to clean ourselves up. But we are able to come to Christ by his grace and receive cleansing, to be made new, to be made the worshipers of God that we are meant to be. Listen, if you don't know Christ today, then how you can respond to this first commandment, have no other gods before me, is to look to Jesus and confess him as Lord. Believe that he is the son of God and trust in him as your savior. That's how you can obey this commandment. If you are a believer, if you know these things and believe these things, then let me exhort you today, remember who Jesus is and remember what he has done for you and worship him exclusively. Worship him alone. So they're like Paul says in Colossians, that he is preeminent over all. The Lord deserves and the Lord demands exclusive worship. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today and may our hearts receive and respond to all that he has said. I want to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and pray with me. And perhaps you need to join me in confessing sin Perhaps you need to join me as well in looking to Christ. I invite you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, as we listen to your law, of the many things that it does for us, it definitely exposes our sin. Lord, there's not a person among us today who's not guilty of false worship, trusting, loving, needing, fearing something else more than you. God, we come broken before you, humbly confessing our guilt and our failure. But Lord, as we look to you, the one true God, we are also comforted to know that you did not leave us in our sin, that the revelation of glory at Sinai was followed by a revelation of glory in Christ. Your son Jesus came to show us who you are. He has revealed your glory. And he suffered and died on the cross so that guilty sinners like us could be forgiven, so that we could be saved from condemnation and judgment. So Lord, we come to you in faith today trusting that you are able to cleanse our sin. You're able to sanctify us and change us and make us who we are supposed to be. Lord, those of us who know you today, we desire to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. We want to be pure in our worship. We want to worship you exclusively. Lord, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is often weak, and we struggle. We pray for your help, that you would grow us and change us. Lord, give us an increased sensitivity to idolatry in our lives. Give us an increased desire for holy and pure worship. Give us an increasing awareness of the futility and the emptiness and the worthlessness of other gods. Lord, give us a greater insight into the ways in which we go astray. Help us to see the things in our life that we didn't take that seriously but are actually false worship. Help us to see it for what it is. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to repent, to turn from sin, to tear down the altars and burn them and grind them to dust, and strengthen our faith as we look to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. We give you all the honor and glory for you are worthy. To you, every knee will bow and every tongue must confess that you are Lord. Upon you, the name has been bestowed that is above every name. You are the Lord. So we pray these things to you and in your name, amen.